0: may be seated and for those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry you are most welcome to take your children there now for those of you whose children stay in the service just by way of reminder they are welcome here if you have young ones that uh, get a bit fussy uh, you uh, that's okay just take them to the kind of common space get them settled down and bring them back in we understand that uh, it is difficult um, to sit in a service for an hour and a half and so Uh, we've been reading for some time through the uh, London Confession of Faith, our Confession of Faith, also known as the 1689, and just by the way, these are In the pew in front of you, you are always welcome to grab one. If you don't own one, you can take that one with you. Uh, And we've been looking particularly at how our confession speaks to the doctrine of justification. And so I wanted to read paragraph five to you, and then we'll jump into our sermon this morning. But paragraph five of chapter 11 says this God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified. Even though they can never fall from a state of justification, they may fall under God's fatherly displeasure because of their sins. In that condition, they will not usually have the light of his face restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, plead for pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. And so a great crisp summary on our justification being fixed because it's in Christ and the need for us to continually confess our sins, and walk in repentance. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. There's two places that we're going to look at this morning. The first is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, We are going to look specifically at verses 16 and 17. Uh, And so turn there, put your thumb on that. And then also Romans chapter 15 verse 14 is another place that we are going to look at Together as we consider the necessity of counseling one another. And so let let me just pray up front, and then uh, I'm going to make a few comments before we actually get to our texts this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for allowing us to be here, allowing us to gather as the bride, as the body of Christ, Lord. I pray that you would knit us together, Lord, in unity. by your word and spirit and lord we know that um your word and spirit produce unity and so god we ask that you would give us soft hearts give us humility god and and uh and lord let us hear this morning god in every lord's day that we come god help us to to not just hear the word but as james reminds us lord help us to be doers of the word and so god help us to respond uh by the strength of your spirit and obedience, and so Lord, help us, help me, God, as I speak this morning to uh, be clear in the way that i 'm speaking and and um, and Lord, in all things, we look to you and we depend on you, and I pray this in Jesus name, amen, so <clears throat> just by way so second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen, Romans chapter fifteen. Verse 14, and, uh, and just by way of reminder, uh, we're doing a, a short topical series this month, and uh, we've called it The State of the Church, and I've done this for the last couple of years, and, and the goal of this series is to help to uh, reorient us uh, in the new year and address what the elders and I see as particular needs as it relates perhaps to evangelicalism at large, but also uh, to us as a church body, to us as Deer Park Fellowship. And last week, we considered the importance of us being a God-centered people and we, we spread that out to its edges. We looked at that from different angles, looked at the God-centered life from different angles. And, and as I said last week, everything else that we're going to discuss, it flows from us being, truly being God-centered, right? The, the foundation of that being that we are a people, if you call yourself a Christian, right? I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, right? Everything, the foundation of being God-centered is the reality that we have been delivered by God through Jesus Christ and that we are in that secure, fixed position held. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit, who the Scripture calls the guarantor of our inheritance. Ephesians speaks to this until the day that we acquire possession of that inheritance, namely eternal Life And so, that is the foundation of being God-centered, and everything that we're talking about flows from us being a people seeking to be God-centered. And this morning, I want to speak about the necessity of the church counseling one another. Now, counseling in the form that we know it uh, or I don't want to assume maybe, maybe there's different images that come to mind, but generally speaking, counseling and the images that come to mind in the form that we know it in is, is a novel idea. 1920s is really when it began to, to take the shape that we all perhaps know it to be. And let me illustrate what I mean for just a moment. When I, when I use the word counseling, there's probably images that come to your mind. Perhaps you picture a very professional setting, right? One person with a notepad and another person lying on a couch in like a faint type position, all right? Perhaps you think of insurance and the cost of insurance uh, or the cost of counseling as it relates to all of that. Uh, Perhaps the images that come to your mind are very clinical. Well, that's not the type of counseling that I'm referring to when I use that word. Uh, those images are actually the the newer concept of counseling. Instead, I want you to think in the context of our local church here at Deer Park Fellowship. Uh, And interestingly enough, uh, Sigmund Freud, who you may have heard that name before, he's also known as the father of modern psychology, uh, before the word counseling was in the form that we know it, he looked at the church and he said he wanted to organize what he called secular pastoral workers, and by pastoral work, he meant counseling, and by secular, he meant without a God to whom we must give an account to, and the reason that I bring this up is to show you that it was was normal if we're looking earlier, okay, past Freud, past counseling as we know it to be, it was normal for the church since the very beginning to do what someone like Freud would look at and seek to Imitate in a secular way. And it is that secular way that many of us perhaps are most familiar with now. But as I said, I I want us to picture a, a type of counseling that's done in the context of the local church, in the context of a community where you're known. As Christians, this type of counseling, it may happen in our homes. It may happen over coffee, it sometimes happens before the gathering, it sometimes happens after the gathering. Most of it is very informal, not as formal as we perhaps are uh, tempted to believe. And while there is a place for formal counseling, this morning I want us to see that there's a type of counseling that is expected of all Christians, uh, of you and of me and that it is a part of our heritage as believers so allow me just for a moment to put it this way all of us need the type of counseling that comes from being integrated in the local church okay all of us need the type of counseling that comes from being integrated in the local church and some of us need medical intervention too Okay, so all of us need the type of counseling that comes from being integrated into a local church, and some of us need medical intervention too. Now, I'm not addressing the medical side of things this morning. What I want to address is what we can label as soul care. And we can label it as soul care. This is the type of counseling that I'm speaking to. For instance, it's captured in a passage like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the church of Thessalonica, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Now, If I were to give a more concrete definition of the type of counseling that I'm talking about, I'm trying to set us up on a particular path, if you can't tell. This is the short definition that I would give it it's the application of the Word of God to an individual's life. It's the application of the Word of God to an individual's life. That doesn't mean (coughs) that we use our Bibles like an encyclopedia, right? Take two verses and call me in the morning, sort of deal, right? Rather, it's an acknowledgement that both the clarity of the law of God okay, and the comforts of the gospel of God genuinely speak to the issues that we face. Okay, it's an acknowledgement that the clarity of the law of God and the, comfort of, the comforts of the gospel of God genuinely speak to the issues that we face. Now, we're young here at Deer Park Fellowship. This past November, as many of you know, we we celebrated our two year anniversary. And and this has been about a five year project for many of us. Uh, We presently have around 118 members and we have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 175 people that I think would consider Deer Park Fellowship home. And if we are to be a healthy church, we must become a church that counsels each other faithfully. So with that said, like I, uh, I brought up a moment ago, I want to look at two different letters from Paul, okay? I want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 to 17 for a few minutes and then we're going to consider one verse, Romans chapter 15 verse 14 together. And so first 2 Timothy 3 16 to 17. The apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he penned these words. All Scripture, and this is very familiar for anybody that's been in church culture for any length of time, but all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, <clears throat> many of you, perhaps know the background to this particular passage of Scripture. But if you don't, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who, and Timothy was a, a pastor at Ephesus, which was a, a local church that the Apostle Paul helped labor to, 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 to get started, and, and the church was struggling. And, and Timothy, in particular, was somebody that the Apostle Paul had mentored. And as a young man, Timothy was someone who was well-acquainted with the scriptures, he was uh, uh, the scriptures were um, uh, were known in Timothy's home. We know that both his grandmother and his mother faithfully um, put the word of God in front of him. We see that in Second Timothy chapter one, verse five. And so, Timothy was someone who it was only natural for him to just eagerly embrace the gospel that the apostle Paul. Preached. It was the, the 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 natural outworking of being just so familiar with the Word of God, and then having Christ, the Word incarnate, preached to him. The the uh, everything just kind of fell in place. And if you can imagine, because Timothy was so faithfully instructed as a kid, um, it, it, it it seems, uh, or we could conclude, perhaps. I don't think that this would be a stretch for us to conclude this, but. Um, he would be someone that from a very young age would have confessed the Scriptures to be inspired by God, to be God-breathed. And so we have the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in the verses that I just read you, and he's, he's not introducing to Timothy for the first time this doctrine of divine inspiration. Okay, he, he's reminding him that the scriptures have been divinely inspired, that the scriptures are ultimately, right, they they were penned by men who were chosen by the Holy Spirit. So they were written by men, but ultimately they were written by the divine author, right, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But that's not the main point of these two verses. Rather, what Paul is emphasizing is the balm if you will the the fix the remedy to these issues that Timothy faced in the church at Ephesus. Timothy, he had a he had a very difficult and stressful uh, pastoral ministry. We don't know how his ministry concluded. There are those that say that he eventually became a martyr um, in, in the area of Ephesus, but, but that you know that's speculation. We don't know if that's the reality, but we do know that he had a very difficult and stressful pastoral ministry. So Paul writes and encourages Timothy to persevere in the work of the ministry, and what Paul emphasizes here for Timothy is that the scriptures are sufficient to Address what he's facing. Okay, Paul says, because the scriptures have a divine author, okay, because they're divinely inspired, they are sufficient. In other words, it's good because the Holy Spirit of God wrote the Bible, right? It's therefore good to apply the Bible, to apply the Scriptures. The Scriptures are useful. The Scriptures are beneficial to apply to life. That is one of the Apostle Paul's applications for Timothy as he reminds Timothy that the Scriptures are divinely inspired. It's as if he's saying, Timothy, you know that the Scriptures have been divinely inspired. Why not use them, right? Why not apply them in the difficulties that you are facing? Now, in what ways are the scriptures sufficient? We see Paul give a list. It isn't leave it up to guesswork for us. He talks about doctrine. If you're looking down with me, right? Which is instruction or teaching, and what is true, and what is right, and what is good. We see the apostle Paul mention the word reproof, which is conviction, right? To, to charge and render a guilty verdict. The Scriptures are sufficient for that. They're sufficient for correction, which is literally to set straight that which is crooked. They're sufficient for training one in righteousness. I mean, if training in righteousness is putting it positively at the same time, Paul is asserting that it's also the a building of strength against that which is unrighteous, and what's the result of this? One who labors in this sort of work, and we see the scriptures say that it produces a fully furnished man of God, a fully furnished woman of God, a fully furnished child of God, right thoroughly equipped. Now, all of these things that the Apostle Paul gives us in this list could go under the banner of counseling, and we could spend a lot of time just fleshing this particular list out, but the point that I want to make for us this morning is more of a bigger picture point, right? Counseling is instruction, teaching what is true and what is right? Counseling is reproof to charge and render a guilty verdict when there's error. Counseling is correction, the setting straight of that which is crooked. Now, you may think to yourself, "Well, Timothy was a pastor, right?" And, I, and I'm not a pastor, so this doesn't apply to me. And, and that would be true if we didn't have the whole counsel of God's word, right? If this was not set in its proper context. We have, for instance, a a passage of Scripture like Ephesians, another one of Paul's letters as he writes to the church of Ephesus, chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, and it speaks how an aspect of pastoral ministry is that of equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Quote, and he gave, he, he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, right? If you're a saint this morning, you should be doing ministry, all right? In the Second Timothy passage that we're looking at, Paul says that what Timothy is doing, what he is laboring to produce, is a fully furnished man of God. In other words, one who is equipped, right? One who is equipped. But I want us to see an even more clear passage, and there's other places that we can go beyond just what I'm putting forth to you this morning. But this is where I want Romans 15 to come in. So turn there with me, Romans 15. And if you're familiar with Romans, you know that that, that Paul wrote this as well. And there are 16 chapters in this letter, in this book. And the way that this, this letter or this book is divided, at least from a a macro level, is the, the, the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans, it's all about what God in Christ has done for us. Right, we, we should never blow past the gospel of God, right? That's the lifeblood of everything. That's the connective tissue of absolutely everything, right? And, and Paul makes that explicitly clear. That's a pattern in Paul's letters, is helping to connect the gospel of God and demonstrate how it's the gospel of God that drives our sanctification. But he writes these first 11 chapters, and it's all about just reveling in the glories of the gospel. And and, and this glorious gospel is something that is so incredible to contemplate, for the Apostle Paul. It's so incredible to put forward to the church in Rome that he breaks out in song. He breaks out in worship. He His, his theology, it leads to doxology. Listen at how the end of Romans chapter uh, 11 goes. The Apostle Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first been given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen verses 33 to 36. Now, the rest of Romans, chapters 12 on through 16, is how the gospel of God drives Christian living. So, Paul doesn't stop. We shouldn't think of Paul's letters. We should think of the Christian life at all as, man, here's the gospel, and now here is my Christian living. That's not it. Paul doesn't stop talking about the gospel in chapters 12 to 16. Rather, he shows how the gospel is driving, as I said a moment ago, it's driving everything. It's driving the way that we should live as Christians. So he doesn't get past the gospel, but he he, he ensures he's building a foundation in the first several chapters, and then he he presses in. He applies the gospel, rather, to the church in Rome. And so we see that chapters 12 to 16 in the book of Romans, they're full of imperatives. They're full of imperatives, right? Under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul is saying, here's how we live in light of the glorious gospel. Here is how the glorious gospel drives the way that we live. This is what freedom looks like. This is what it looks like to be delivered from sin's dominion. And so at Romans 15, we're in the midst of the Apostle Paul's instructions as it relates to Christian living. Right? Living in light of the finished work. Now, look down at your Bibles. Look at Romans 15 because I want to give you just a quick overview of it. And as you read it, you might summarize it differently than how I'm about to summarize it. But this is what I came up with. Right? The first three verses of chapter 15, All right? we can summarize it this way Be like Christ and seek the good of others and bear with each other's failings. Don't seek to please yourself, right? don't be selfish be God-centered, okay? Verses four to seven, the God who has endured with you will give you strength to endure with one another. Therefore, live in harmony with one another and be welcoming to one another, And, and our welcoming of one another is grounded in God through Christ Jesus welcoming us in to the glory of God. So we have to be welcoming to one another. Verses 8 to 13, Christ is the hope of Jews and Gentiles and will fill you with peace and joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 14 to 20, Paul Apostle Paul speaks of his ministry to the Gentiles, one one of laying a foundation where there was no foundation previously. And he tells the Roman church that they're able, and this is where we'll camp out at in a minute, but that they're able to instruct one another according to the passage or the, the, the message that he's delivered to them. The, the good news, the gospel of God. And then in the final verses of chapter 15, verse 22 to 23, Paul explains that he had been hindered from visiting them because he's committed to taking the gospel where it had not previously been taken, right? He tells of his missionary plans. He says that he looks forward to seeing the Christians in Rome because it'll encourage him, He asks for prayers and specifically asks them to pray that he would be delivered from the hands of unbelievers, and he asks them to pray that his ministry in Jerusalem would be acceptable to the believers as well. So so that's an overview, but as I said, the, the, the verse that I want you to pay attention to is verse 14, because it helps us to see the necessity of counseling one another, how it is our obligation as Christians to participate in that work. Verse 14, Paul says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren. Again, speaking of the Roman church that that could have read this and have come up with lots of excuses, right? If a church had some excuses to say, not for us, right? The Roman church was a church like that. Many reasons to push back. And he says, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, Filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Now, I've been up here laboring so far to demonstrate to you this morning, point one, if you're taking notes, that in a healthy church, Christians counsel one another. In a healthy church, Christians counsel one another. Now, I've defined counseling for you. I've given you a few different things that could fall under that banner of counseling, but I want to focus on a particular word For a few minutes, and that word is admonish, which is in verse 14. That's that's what it's translated in most of our English translations, but in the Greek, it's the word nuthateo, nuthateo, and it's a verb which does mean to admonish or to warn or to instruct, and if you think about it, this is what any counselor worth listening to does, okay? One commentator says specifically that admonishing, it presupposes an opposition which has to be overcome. It seeks to correct the mind, to put right what is wrong, and to improve the spiritual attitude, okay? Now, doesn't that sound a lot like what Paul told Timothy the scriptures were sufficient for? Now, a primary way that God intends for us to be counseled is through the public preaching of the Word, what i 'm up here doing this morning and and not everyone is called to preach another way, believe it or not, is through singing something we 're all commanded to do is scripture uh, in scripture as Christians Colossians chapter three verses sixteen to seventeen Let the Word of Christ dwell in you. Richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing, it's the same word, one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Not only are we singing to God as we gather, but one of the reasons what we're doing here isn't like you singing to God in your car and you think nobody's watching you, right? And you're singing really loud and proud and you realize the windows were down and you're at a stoplight, but. <clears throat> The reason why that's not the same is because we're not just singing to God, we're counseling one another when we gather through melody. So it's important to raise your voice to the Lord this morning. I was blessed this morning by hearing you sing. You were singing loudly, and I don't know if you connected that a part of what you were doing was admonishing one another, but you were Right? You were comforting one another with the glories of God. You were reminding each other who God is. You are reminding one another who you are in Christ. And this is a very familial thing to do. And so singing is counseling. Singing is a form of counseling. But there's another way that, that should be mentioned, and, and one that happens, uh, again, in a lot of informal ways. And, and I would label this as, as, as privately administering. God's Word to one another. So it's like the private ministry of the Word, right? Again, the clarity of the law is being administered, and the comforts of the gospel are being administered as well. But think about the one another's in Scripture for a moment. There's there's at least 50 of them, and I'm not going to list all 50, but in the list we see things like this, right? This was in our confession of sin this morning, bearing one another's burdens, Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. Comfort one another, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, first part of verse 11. Care for one another, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. Confess sins to one another, James chapter 5, first part of verse 16. Pray for one another, the second part of James chapter 5, verse 16. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 10, verse 25. Build one another up, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, second part of verse 11 and exhort one another as it relates to not being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13. There's an admonishing characteristic to all of these things, but let's go back to Romans chapter 15 verse 14 with all that in review, right? Paul, he tells the Roman church that they are competent to admonish one another. They're competent to admonish one another, and it isn't inappropriate for us to harmonize Everything that we're talking about with the Apostle Paul's words here in verse 14. The Apostle Paul says he's confident in the ability of the Roman church to admonish one another. He says, quote, I am convinced. I'm convinced, which translates in a perfect tense. So Paul, at the writing of this letter, he says he's always confident in the ability that Roman Christians have as it relates to their capacity to counsel one another, to particularly admonish one another. So in context, Paul, he doesn't want his instructions, he doesn't want his letter to give the impression that he's the only one that's capable to counsel. On the contrary, they are able, they are able, despite Paul's corrections in his letter to them, despite his boldness in writing to them, and despite the opposition that they faced as Christians in the early church, right? If you, think, if you think that you're experiencing pressure, imagine being a Christian in the early church and hearing the instructions. Now listen, don't get so overwhelmed with your circumstances that you forget that you're to counsel and admonish one another. He believed them to be competent, and he expected them to practice this type of ministry. Think about this from a sustainability standpoint. If Paul was the only one that was able to admonish, that would be an unsustainable, unsustainable path forward for the church, wouldn't it? That wouldn't work. If Timothy, think about Timothy, if Timothy remained the only one at the church of Ephesus with the ability to counsel, to use the the scriptures to address the problems facing the church, then things would deteriorate even more over time at Ephesus. Think of us here at Deer Park Fellowship. If the only place to get counseling is by coming to me uh, or, or, or one of the other elders here, that's not a healthy, sustainable model for us as a church. Right? The, the prayer of our elders here is, is that you leave each Sunday feeling fed and feeling nourished and, and further equipped. And as that's happening, our prayer is that you would see the necessity of administering God's word in the relationships that you have here at Deer Park. Right? As Christians, we have an obligation to counsel, to admonish One another. And if we as members here don't take that seriously, we're on an unhealthy, unsustainable path forward. Now, a few things that should be said as it relates to Romans 15, because it helps to provide some guardrails for us on this point. First, Paul's assertion that the, the Roman church was competent assumes that there are those who aren't competent, okay? His assertion that they are competent it, it assumes that there are, in fact, people that aren't confident, uh, competent. In other words, we're not good counselors by default. All right? We're not good counselors by default. We're not good by default at admonishing one another. So just because it's expected of you doesn't mean that you're good at it. But just because you're not good at it, it doesn't mean that you're free to disregard the expectation that the New Testament places on us as Christians to participate in this ministry. Right? So what constitutes a competent counselor, a competent admonisher. Look at verse 14 again for the qualifiers. We must be, quote, full of goodness and, quote, filled with knowledge. Paul says that that's what the Roman church possessed. So, a few things here, and this is the rest of your your notes in your worship guide. First, a good counselor rests in the finished work of Jesus. Okay, a good counselor rests in the finished work of Jesus. That means that first we have to be Christians. First and foremost, we have to be Christians. We must be a people in a resting posture. Right? We have to be resting in Christ alone for our salvation. This is the only way that we can truly be good. Right? You can't be good apart from Christ. And we remind ourselves of that every week here. Right? Our righteousness is a foreign one. Our righteousness comes from outside of us, not from within us. Our righteousness is Christ. So, a good counselor, in the biblical sense of counseling, again, that I'm speaking of, right, the type of counseling that we're talking about this morning is one that is resting in Christ, trusting in Christ. This person will point you to Christ and not be a substitute savior, okay, which is critical. It relates to things like codependency, Secondly, a good counselor is a virtuous Christian. A good counselor is a virtuous Christian. This phrase full of goodness, it also means that we give attention. We give serious attention to our character. Okay, both the meditations of our heart and our observable behavior. By God's grace, we have to be a virtuous people. We have to be cultivating virtue in our lives. If you lack self-control in your life, if you're consumed by your lusts, you're not in a position to give counsel, right? You need to bring your heart, you need to bring your thinking, you need to bring your behavior in subjection to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that you're perfect or that the counselor is someone who has perfect character. Nobody's going to be sinless this side of eternity, but there should be, and perhaps a good way to put it is there should be a stableness to your walk with Christ. And there should be a stableness, a steadiness to your walk with Christ. And Paul also says that we have to be filled with knowledge. How, how are we filled with knowledge? What does that mean? How do we have knowledge that's required to be considered someone that's competent to admonish, competent to counsel? I'm slowly working through Proverbs with my family throughout the week. And, and just this week, we read together Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. And it says this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And, and after reading that, I asked my boys, where does wisdom and knowledge and understanding come from, according to that passage. And they said it comes from the Lord's mouth. And, and my follow up question is Where do we hear God speak? Right? And that's my question to you. Where do we hear God speak? Right? And we know and we confess that it's in the sufficient scripture. And that's the third thing a good counselor gives careful attention that his counsel is biblical. A good counselor gives careful attention that his counsel is biblical. We have to have our thinking and and therefore our admonishing, our counseling saturated by Scripture, which means that we have to be ever growing in our knowledge of the Word of God. Again, the, the the prayer of our elder team is that the the preaching ministry here helps to grow you in your knowledge and understanding of the Bible, and we can point you in the right direction on how to study the Scriptures on your own. Right? There's so many ways we lived in a very we live in a very blessed age. There's so many different ways to be able to grow in the Word of God, even in addition to hearing the public preaching of the Word of God, right? We have access to commentaries. If you can't afford a commentary, you can find them for free online. Most of the commentaries, honestly, that are worth reading are free, by the way, because all the guys that wrote them died way before there was such thing as a copyright. So, but but we can read commentaries. We can listen to our Bibles on audio as we drive, right? Again, it, it, we, we, we live in a, a very blessed time for Bible intake and, and for getting familiar with the Scripture, but I want to add this. Right? As we seek to, to grow in our knowledge of Scripture, we do so as a dependent people. Or we do so dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. It's not just information that we're putting in, right? The Holy Spirit of God has to use that information and and warm our affections, right? And we know the Holy Spirit to be one who exalts Christ to us. We know the Holy Spirit to be a comforter to us. We know the Holy Spirit to be the illuminator of the Word, right? And who better to illuminate the Word than the one who inspired the Word, right? So, we need help with discernment and the way in which we do that is first by recognizing that we're a dependent people as we come to the Word of God, and as we do that, the Holy Spirit changes us, and, and we come dependent on the Holy Spirit of God to change the individuals that we're counseling, right? I have good news for those of you who participate in this type of ministry. You can't change the person's heart that you're counseling, right? You need to be faithful, and you need to be truthful, and you need to be biblical, and you need to be steadfast, in the counsel that you give, but at the end of the day, only God turns the heart of man, right? So you do it as one that's dependent upon the scripture. So this morning, I want us to see right, if you're a Christian, if you're a part of the body, the bride of Christ, express this side of eternity through the visible church. There's an expectation in the New Testament and, and down through church history that you counsel each other, It isn't left to professionals outside the context of the local church, and it isn't the elder's job solely. All of us have to be committed to counseling one another. So a few practical things, couple of practical steps I want to close with. For the month of February, I'm going to do a Sunday school class, four to six weeks, depending on how much time, how much material we cover per Sunday school class, but I'm going to do a four to six week Sunday school class on the basics of biblical counseling. I I want us, again, we're a young church body. I want us to grow on the front end in this particular one another ministry. Um, If we don't, we're not going to spiritually flourish the way that we should spiritually flourish. And then secondly, it's just a challenge to you personally, and this will come up in a couple of weeks, but counseling presupposes that you know one another, all right? So, be welcoming to one another and foster relationships here and build trust with one another. And by the way, that takes time, right? That takes time, and that takes being willing to um, not be offended so easily in your engagement with one another and being forgiving of one another. But we're again, talk about that when we um, talk about hospitality in a couple of weeks. Um, So with that said, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of God. Lord, help us to be people that are ever resting in the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, in our relationships with each other, help us to point one another to Christ, who is sufficient. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the portion of our service where we come to the Lord's table. If you are a guest with us, we don't require membership for you to be able to partake of the elements. What we ask is that you are a Christian and that you have been given a Trinitarian baptism and that you are one who is actively confessing sin, repenting of sin, and, and, and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And So if that is you this morning, uh, you are welcome to the Lord's table. If that's not you, uh, we ask that you would just remain seated, that this is a meal for God's people, and uh, and for for any of you that that don't partake of the Lord's Supper, if you would like to learn more about the gospel of God, uh, we would love to have that discussion for you.